Let me encourage you to turn this morning to the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 3, and verses 14, 15, and 16. 1 Timothy 3, 14 through 16. As you turn there, you should know this is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to Timothy, his closest, closest associate in gospel ministry. And it is a letter giving Timothy instructions for how to organize God's church. I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Father, we thank you for that one who was revealed in the flesh and vindicated in the spirit and seen by angels and proclaimed among the nations and believed on in the world and taken up into glory. We thank you that your son is at your right hand even now in glory, interceding for us. And we pray that you hear his intercession and ours as we ask you now to show us yourself. Show us ourselves. Show us our Savior. Show us what we, the church, ought to be for your sake and for the sake of your Son. And we pray in his name. Amen. You have an unusual opportunity this morning to hear a sermon that was prepared and put together on three different continents. I had just snatches of time here and there in Ethiopia and then again in the airport in Amsterdam and on the plane and then a little bit of time yesterday to think about what it was that God would want me to say to you as I came back home this morning. And it occurred to me uh, that as I had been teaching all week long last week on the church that perhaps that might be the way to go this morning. First of all, it was already in my mind. But second of all, as I taught these Ethiopian men about the local church, the church of Jesus, uh, I had occasion again and again and again to use you all as examples. Um, We were teaching the men that church membership ought to mean something, that it ought not to just be willy-nilly, but that it ought to be people who have genuinely professed faith in Christ and that as far as we can tell, have genuinely been changed by Christ. And I had the opportunity to talk to them about our family and how we seek to do that and how God has given us blessing and success. We wanted to teach them about accountability, how we ought to, when a brother sins, go to him. And if he repents, rejoice. And if he doesn't repent, go to him again with one or two others and then eventually tell it to the church and so on from Matthew 18. And as we taught that, I had occasion again to say we've done this here and God has brought people together. God has healed relationships. God has brought forgiveness and God has brought to us and made for himself a more pure church. We had occasion to teach them what the Bible says an elder should be and to say to them, we went through this same process here 
and worked through this and learned this and have implemented it. We had opportunity to teach them what deacons ought to be and what they're supposed to be doing. And I was able to say, we have three men in our church who do what deacons are supposed to do and to talk to them about those men. And so I thought this morning as I was planning what I would say to you that it might be helpful for us to think through these things again. The church, first of all, to say thank you to God and to you for what he has done here. So 1 Timothy 3, I hope, is a great encouragement that God has been at work in our midst. But I also want to look at these verses again to say to you, keep at it. In other words, I don't commend you this morning so that we can rest on our laurels and say, ha ha, everyone is looking at us for the example. No, actually, we still have a long way to go, all of us as individuals and as a family, don't we? So we need to keep at it. And we need, as Paul would say in another one of his letters, to excel still more. We need to excel still more as a church. And so when we look at these three verses, I think we find some challenges. And I think we find the answer to a very important question. The question that I hope these men in Ethiopia had all week long and and found answers to, and the, the question that I hope that you will find answers to this morning is this. Why is the church so important? Why does God care so much about the local church? Why is it such a big deal? In other words, why has Pleasant Ridge Baptist Church spent the time and the months and the years that we have trying to reorder ourselves to be more biblical? Why spend 10 days in Ethiopia and why did people, various people in churches, give $7,000 between plane tickets and uh, money to support these men coming in and being fed and housed? Why 10 days and $7,000 to talk to these men solely about the local church? And why does Paul here in the book of 1 Timothy give really an entire book of the Bible to explaining how we ought to do things in the local church? If you read 1 Timothy on your own, perhaps this afternoon or this week, you will discover that that's really what this book is. It's a a, a manual, a guidebook for the local church. And so really the key verse in the whole book, the verse that defines the book, is verse 15 here. I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. That's the topic sentence if this were English class. Why did I write? Here's the reason. So you will know how to live and how to conduct yourself in the church of God. This is an entire manual, a handbook on the local church. Why is the church that important? Isn't it just, you know, we get together and we sing and we pray and we preach and and we love God and we love each other and that's the end of it. Why give a whole book to it? Well, There are two answers here in the text. Two answers why the church is so important to God, why God loves the local church so much, and why you ought to love the local church as much as you do and even more so. All of us ought to grow in our love for the local church for two reasons. One, because, verse 15, the local church is the household of God. It is the household of God. And the other reason why the local church is so important is also in verse 15 because the church is the pillar and support of the truth. Why is the church so important? Two reasons and therefore two main points in this sermon. Because the church is the household of God. This group this morning, this group of people, if you're here and you're a believer and you're part of this family, this is the household of God. 
And this, believe it or not, small as we are, small and weak as we may feel, sinful as we may feel, inadequate as we may feel, this group of people this morning is the pillar and support of the truth in this community. This is the group of people that God has put here to uphold the truth in this community. This is it. Why is the church so important? Because it is the household of God and because it is the pillar and the support of the truth. Now let's think about both of those in a little more detail. Why is the church, why is this church and why is every local church so important? Number one, because the church is the household of God. In other words, the church is the family of God. The church members are the children of God. God's kids gathered here this morning. Now, if God has kids, don't you think God would love his kids? And if they are all gathered in one place, don't you think God would care about what happens in that place? Of course, God loves his children. If you have children, you understand this. Let me tell you how much I love my children. Before I left, Toby snuck into my bag a little, a little flip book, one of those Walmart picture books that you get and she put pictures of the kids and then she cut out little picture sized pieces of cardboard or pieces of construction paper where the kids drew pictures for me and wrote little messages for me and she stuck these all in a little book and I took it with me and I looked at those pictures and those drawings nearly every day sometimes several times a day sometimes for a long time I mean I could look through it in two minutes but sometimes I spent a long time looking at the pictures of my children and drawn by my children. Love my kids. And then in the airport in Amsterdam, Anthony and I had an hour or so together, and so we went and got a Coke before I got on the plane to come back to Detroit, and we talked for about an hour, and well over half of our conversation, as I remember, it was about our children. We talked about our children and how we were excited to see them, how wonderful it had been and how all that God had done had been marvelous and spectacular, but how there's just something back to getting back to our children. And again, if you have children, you understand what that's like. And if we love our children that much, if we long for our children that much, if we just want to look at the pictures of our children that much, how much more must the Heavenly Father love His household? How much more must God love His children? And if God loves his children, of course he cares, verse 15, about how they conduct themselves. Of course he cares how they behave. Of course he cares who looks after them. If you were leaving your children with someone, wouldn't you care who looked after them and who fed them and what they fed them? Of course you would. Of course God wants his children to be cared for and well fed. Of course he cares how they behave, how they act. Again, think about it. If you have children or if you have friends who have children or if you've ever been a child before any of us would ever send our kids to school or to daycare or to a babysitter or to a friend's house that was a new friend don't we go and kind of snoop around and find out how things are going to be don't we find out how the children are going to be expected to behave and how they're going to be treated and how they're going to be fed and who's going to care for them and what those people's backgrounds are? Of course we do. We want what's best for our children. And if we love our kids that much, how much more must God love his household? Of course he checks into the background of those men who are going to be leading his people. 
Of course he's going to give a whole chapter on what deacons and elders should be and do. Of course he cares what we learn in chapter 4, that we don't just hear fables and wives' tales, but that we're nourished on sound doctrine. Of course he cares who does what in the services and whether there's order or chaos. You ever go into a schoolroom where there's chaos? And you say to yourself, I don't know if I want my kids to be here. This is chaotic. This is crazy. Well, of course God's going to give instructions. God loves his children. So the church is not a free-for-all. Not because God is a stickler, not because God wants to put some people in uh, positions of submission and some people in authority so that they can sort of feel bad or feel good about themselves. No, the reason why God does everything he does in the church is because he wants his children to be well cared for. He wants them to be fed and well fed, and he wants them to know how to behave, how to conduct themselves. So, of course, God loves his children, and not only do we have that logic that simply because the church is the household of God, it must be important to God. But also when we consider that the church is the household of God, we need to consider what it costs God for that to be true. Paul doesn't speak of it here, but it's the center of his message elsewhere in the Bible. The church is the church. The church is the household of God. The children of God are adopted into his family at the cost of his only begotten son. That's why the church is so important. God doesn't want his son's blood spilled on the ground and poured out for people who are just going to live any way they want and for churches that are going to be willy-nilly. No. Now think about it. We've been adopted into God's family. We are God's children. We've been saying that already. We are given all the rights and privileges of natural-born sons and daughters, even though we're not. We are loved just like natural born sons and daughters, even though we are not. Adoption is a wonderful picture. You heard that uh, by the example of Justin Huffman last week, I think. God has adopted us as his children. We're really his children, not his stepchildren, but really his children. He loves us as his own. And that is amazing enough, as we've been saying. But even more amazing than that is when we consider the high cost of adoption. Adoption's expensive. In our culture, it's expensive. If you go to Ethiopia to adopt, it's expensive. But not nearly as much as it costs God to adopt us as his children. Our adoption fees have been paid in God's Son's own blood. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that he should give his only Son to make a wretch his treasure. If God's son spilled his blood for the church, then of course this group of people is the most important group of people to God on the planet. He cares how we order ourselves. He cares how we're taught. He cares how we are led because we have been bought with Christ's own blood. So the church is important simply because we are God's children. And God wants what's best for his children. But secondly, the church is important. And I want to spend more time on this one because the church is the pillar and support of the truth. The church is the pillar and the support of the truth. The church is what upholds the truth for the world. Now, before we think about that more in detail, let me remind you what Paul is not saying here. 
Because some folks take this verse and make it mean something it doesn't. When Paul says the church is the pillar in support of the truth, he is not saying, first of all, that the church is the truth. He's not saying that. The church is not the truth itself. In other words, the church is not an end in itself. Our message to people is not, you need to get in church, as though the church were an end in itself. No. The church is not an end. The church is a means to an end. The end is that people would come to know Jesus, who is the truth. The church isn't the truth. The church is the means to get people to know the truth. The church points people to the truth. The church upholds the truth so that as Jesus is lifted up, people would be drawn to him. The church is not the truth, nor is the church the source and the judge of the truth. Now, this is how Roman Catholics and others interpret this verse. Well, they say the church is the pillar in support of the truth. So you can't have the truth unless you have the church. Therefore, the church is the judge of the truth and the church is the source of the truth and the church determines what is truth. Well, that's not true either. Truth is never dependent on the pillar. The pillar simply holds it up. But the truth is the truth whether there's a pillar or not, whether there's a church or not, right? So it's not that uh, the church is somehow infallible that the Pope is infallible or that the councils of the church are infallible because the church somehow is the source of the truth. No, that's not true. That doctrine is simply used to repress people who don't know the truth. If you don't know the truth and the church tells you that they are the source of the truth, then what that means is they say to you, well, you have to do what we say. And the Bible only means what we tell you it means. And so it's just a way to repress people. But that's not what Paul is saying here. The church isn't the determiner of the truth. The church is not the truth itself. The church is simply the pillar of the truth, the herald of the truth, the one group of people who points faithfully to the truth. So the church is not the truth. It's not the source of the truth. What is it then? It is the pillar and support of the truth. What does that mean? Well, wonderfully, in Ethiopia, the little room that we teach in, Right in the middle of the room, I mean right down the middle, what would be the middle aisle here, there is a pillar right in the middle of the room that upholds this basement room and then on top of that is the auditorium for the church. So it was a wonderful example. You pull that pillar out, you take an axe and you knock that pillar down and the whole building crumbles. Same thing here with these weight-bearing walls. You knock over this wall here and this whole room collapses, doesn't it? Scott told me about how a guy at his workplace drove a piece of heavy equipment into a pillar on one side of their building and the whole side of the building came down sideways. We all know what a pillar is like. We all know the importance of it. You don't mess with the weight-bearing walls, the supports, the pillars. And that's what Paul is saying about the church. The church is the pillar. It is the support. It is the weight-bearing wall that makes sure that the truth is upheld and doesn't fall to the ground unheard and unheeded doesn't mean the truth is not the truth if the church crumbles. It just means the truth isn't going to be seen or heard by very many people. If the church crumbles because of unbiblical leadership or unbiblical membership or unbiblical teaching or unbiblical behavior, if the church crumbles for any of those reasons, who will hold up the truth to the world? Who? I mean... The, the people in the world don't listen to the Christian radio stations. We can convince ourselves that that's really how we're going to reach the world, but it's not true. They listen to you. They watch you at work. And if you and I aren't who we're supposed to be, then they're not going to listen to anyone, 99% of them. If there's no church 
or no biblical church, no one hears the gospel. Jesus is not upheld to the world and everything crumbles. We may try to uphold the truth, but if we are disorganized or if we are disunified or if we are unholy or if we are unchanged in our behavior, then who's going to listen to us? No one. So the church is very, 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 very important. It is the one institution in the world that God has said, this is the institution that will uphold the truth. Not the parachurch organizations, not the radio, not the missionary society. All those things are wonderful, but the church is the group of people that God has said, you are the ones that are supposed to uphold the truth among your neighborhoods and among the nations. So it's very important that we be who God has called us to be, that we heed all of these things that we've been learning and trying to apply these last several years. Let me just give you an example of how important this is in our own denomination. In our denomination, every few years, uh, they come out with statistics, which aren't always very helpful or accurate. You can make statistics mean anything you want. But the statistics of late seem to show that Southern Baptist churches are baptizing less and less and less people as time goes on. We're not seeing as many people baptized or saved. Now, some people would say, well, maybe that's because we're being more careful and actually only baptizing people who really believe. But that's, that's another question altogether. But people look at these statistics and they say, why are we baptizing less people? Why does it appear that less people are being converted in our churches? And they come up with all sorts of things. And then the answer always seems to be, well, we need to redouble our efforts at evangelism. Maybe we need a new program. Maybe we need some kind of a nationwide emphasis. Maybe we need to put some literature in the churches to encourage people to evangelize. Whatever it is, we need to redouble our efforts to get people to go out into their communities, into their schools, into their workplaces and tell people about Jesus. And that may be true. We should be redoubling our efforts even if the numbers were going up. We should always be telling people about Jesus. But here's the thing. No one ever seems to pause, or very few people ever seem to pause and ask themselves, maybe the problem is not evangelism. Maybe the problem is not that we're not sharing the gospel or not attempting to share the gospel. Maybe the problem is the church. Maybe the problem is not with the message. Maybe the problem is not with the truth, but with the pillar that upholds the truth. Maybe we're saying the right things, but nobody's hearing because the pillar is not very tall or not very strong or because it's crumbled altogether. If we have churches that aren't attractive to the world, that don't mimic Christ, that don't display his holiness, both in the way we organize ourselves and the way we live and the way that we obey God. If those things aren't present, it doesn't matter how much we tell people they are not going to listen, are they? That's what Paul is saying. If the church doesn't stand straight, then the truth will fall. And people will look at us and say, well, they're a lot like us, you know. I mean, they complain about the government just like we do, and they think about the law just like we do in large measure. They, they put their hope in the same things we put our hope in. They love their stuff just like we do. I mean, it's pretty much the same kind of thing. And... They say you come to church and you'll be happy and you'll have joy in Jesus, but I feel okay on my own, and so they ignore us. Of course they ignore us. If we're not who we're supposed to be, it can be applied not only to the church as a whole, but to you as an individual. If you share the gospel at your office or at your school, do people look at you like, what is the matter with you? That's weird. That's crazy. Or do they know by the holiness of your life that there's something different? And that though they may not want to listen, 
They ought to listen. Do they say that about us? Secondly, if the church isn't what it ought to be, not only will people not look at us and be attracted to Jesus, but God won't bless us. I mean, do we expect that we're the pillar that upholds the truth and that we can just kind of build the pillar any way we want and expect God to bless us with new converts? No. We need to be who God has called us to be. That doesn't mean that we don't need to be shouting from the rooftops the message of Jesus, but it means that while we're doing that, we need to make sure that we are who we're supposed to be. Not just that we have the truth, but that we uphold it by godly churches and godly individual lives. The church is the pillar. It is the support of the truth, without which the truth falls to the ground unheeded and unheard. Now, just thinking this through and thinking about what was important in Ethiopia and what's been important here over the years in thinking through the holiness and the godliness of the local church, I just jotted down in Amsterdam this week five ways that the church needs to be a pillar and a support of the truth. Five ways, and I'm going to give you these and we'll be done. The church, first of all, is to be the pillar of organizational truth. It doesn't sound spiritual, but you'll see that it's found in this book, First Timothy. The church is to be the pillar of organizational truth. All throughout chapters 1 through 3, before these verses, and again all throughout chapters 4, 5, and 6, after these verses, you find Paul telling Timothy, this is how you organize things. This is how you do things. This is the role of men. This is the role of women. This is the role of young people. This is the role of old people. This is the role of elders and deacons. This is the place for prayer. This is the place for scripture reading and preaching and so on. You read through this book and it really does read like a manual. I mean, in in modern times, we would put little chapter numbers and bullet points and things like that. And we would have lists. But you could go through if you just took out all the markings in First Timothy and just took the text and you could make the bullet points and indent things. And it would read just like a manual, something that you would get at work or something that you would get when you get one of these new boxes for your TV that no one seems to know how to hook up. That's what, it, that's what this is. It's an instruction manual. It's amazing. God cares about organization. It seems unspiritual. I know. We say to ourselves, well, that, that's just worldly thinking. You know, we're always trying to be organized and we should just be led by the Spirit. But when you're led by the Spirit, you read God's Word and you find that He cares about how we conduct ourselves, about how we organize things. It's amazing. Why does he care? Well, because the church is the pillar. The church is supposed to be reflecting the character of God to the world. God's not a God of disorder, is he? No, God's a God of order. That doesn't mean that God is, is all the time on our case to have everything just right, just so, just the way. And some of us are like that, and this shouldn't encourage us to think our type A personality is necessarily spiritual. But... The reality is that God is, is not at the other end of the spectrum either. God is not chaotic. And if God's people are chaotic, if people don't know where they're supposed to be and what they're supposed to be doing, if people don't do what they've been called to do, then the church isn't very strong. And it can't uphold the truth like it should. And not only that, but our organization should reflect the care of God. God cares for his people. That's why he's given elders and deacons, and that's why he's given a whole chapter here in chapter 3 to explain what they should be. 
Because these are the men that care for the church, both spiritually and physically. They take care of the needs of the church, and God loves his people. And God gives instructions to older women about how they're to care for the younger women. So the church, in its organization, reflects the character of God and the care of God. And it reflects the counsel of God. There's a reason why not just anyone is supposed to stand up and teach on a given day, why there are certain characteristics and there's a time and a place. Because God wants to make sure that his word is given out accurately by people who've been tested and trained and are qualified. So the church is the pillar of organizational truth. There is order in God's church if it is to be strong. Secondly, the church is the pillar of doctrinal truth. Doctrinal truth. The church is to have its doctrine right. You'll notice in verse 16 that Paul tells us that he is giving us a confession. We would call it a confession of faith or a list of articles of faith. That's what he does in verse 16. It's not a full confession of everything that the church believes, but apparently this little poem was something that people memorized early on in Christianity to say, this is what we believe about Jesus. And so here we have a confession of doctrine. This is what we believe about Jesus. Jesus is not nebulous. He is a real, actual person that we can make real, live statements about, black and white statements. Now, this is important for us. It's important in America. It was important in Africa. We had this brother from Zambia who is a godly, godly pastor there, 20 years ahead of where we're trying to take these men in Ethiopia. And he came and he spoke to the men on the last day of the training. And one of the things he said to them is he said, we Africans really like stories. We love stories. In fact, in the villages, sometimes there are people whose whole job is to tell stories. And he said, but you know what sin has done? Sin has made us come into church and do nothing but tell stories. And he gave an example. He had been off for two weeks from his church, and so he had visited another church, and he heard a whole sermon that was built around the story of a mouse. The mouse who hears the farmer setting the mouse trap. And so he goes to the goat and says, what are we going to do? And the goat says, that's your problem. And he goes to the cow and says, I need help. The farmer is putting out mouse traps. And the cow says, you got to take care of that on your own. And then he goes to the goose, and the goose says the same thing. And the mouse goes to sleep that night terrified about what may happen to him. And in the night he wakes up and hears the clap of the trap, and he goes and he looks, and there's a snake caught in the trap. And in the morning the farmer finds the snake, and it's the snake that's been biting the children, and the family is very happy, and they decide they're going to kill the goat and the cow and the goose in order to celebrate. And the moral of the story is, your friend's problems are your problems. Now that's a quaint story, fit for a front porch. But that was the sermon. The whole sermon, he said, was built around that story. And in Africa, instead of teaching doctrine, they teach stories. Not the stories of Daniel and the lion's den, but stories about mice and goats and so on. And it's directly in contrast to what Paul says over in chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, isn't it? In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following, but have nothing to do with worldly fables, fit, excuse me, I lost my place, fit only for old women. Now, we won't talk about 
why he says fit only for old women. But the point is this. God's people don't need stories, no matter how entertaining they may be, even if they have a point. God has not appointed pastors and elders to be Aesop. He has appointed us to teach doctrine. Now, what about in America? First of all, let's say that in America, that would be a wonderful sermon in a lot of places. People in America love stories, too. It makes the time go by faster when you're sitting through the sermon. But in America, it's not so much stories that we love. It's self-help. Self-help. I like to go to church because I feel better when I leave and I feel like I can make it through the week. I went the other day and he gave us these six things, these six ways to make new friends. Or these six ways to deal with difficult children. Or these ten ways to deal with problem people at work. Or whatever it is. We love self-help in America. You just look at the TV guide and you can tell how much we love self-help. And we we could... Place that in for the word fables here. Give your attention not to how to help your life go smoother, but to the doctrine of the Bible. Let me ask you, do you know Bible doctrine? In other words, take those, take those sermons that we just finished up, those 20 or so sermons on the main big doctrines of the Bible, the Trinity, justification, original sin, the church, and so on. I'm not asking if you could stand up at work and give 45 minutes or an hour about each of those topics, but could you give two or three minutes of a real biblical summary of these important Bible doctrines that people need to know in order to go to heaven? Do you really know doctrine? I hope you do. If you don't, then you've got some homework. It could be a project for you for 2009 to pick up one of these books that's out here in the hallway or in the library and start to work your way through the major doctrines of the Bible and say, I can explain how this all fits together. Not perfectly, not everything that's ever been said in the Bible, but I can explain the main doctrines of the faith. That's what the world needs. If the world wants somebody just to make them feel better and solve their problems temporarily, there are lots of people who can do that. Lots of people. The doctors can do it sometimes with the right kind of medicine. Oprah can do it. Joel Osteen can help you have your best life now. But it's not our best life now that we want, is it? We want to get on the pathway that goes to heaven. And it is Bible doctrine that marks out that roadmap for us. And also, people want this. Sometimes we say to ourselves, well, you know, if we're too heavy into doctrine, and if we're really trying to parse out the truth in in clear detail for people, people won't come. They won't enjoy that. Maybe they won't. It would just be evidence that they don't enjoy God because God's book is full of doctrine. But, But people do want it very often. They do. We think that they want everything uncomplicated and simple and in stories and self-help, but but people who are really seeking for God, they want answers to the questions that they have. They want to know how suffering can fit together with a God who's good and sovereign. They want to know how forgiveness and justice can come from the same God. How can He be just, punishing our sins and still forgive us? They want to know how God's sovereignty and human responsibility fit together. Two years ago, I was assigned that topic for a special meeting at the Baptist Collegiate Ministry to explain predestination from the Bible. And the place was packed. 
with people that a lot of Christians would say, oh, no, 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 no. Those young people, they don't want all that stuff. They want good music. They, they want, uh, you know, a story that helps them love Jesus more. But don't try to bore them with an hour and a half of intricate details from Romans 9. My goodness. But the place was packed. Why? Because God's truth is good truth. Not everybody enjoys it, but the people who are looking for God, both the saved people and the people who are saying, I need something. I don't know what it is, but I need something. They want answers. And we are the pillar that is supposed to be able to uphold the answers. Are you able to do that? Make sure that you are. And make sure that you always have leaders here who do. Thirdly, the church is the pillar of loving truth. Loving truth. Sometimes we feel like love and truth are opposite of one another. Am I going to love this person or am I going to be really truthful? Am I going to be sweet to them or am I going to be brutally honest? Well, love actually is truth. As the church seeks to uphold the truth in the world, one of the ways that we do it most attractively is when we love one another, God, and the world around us. Do you remember Acts chapter 2? One of the things that was said about the church in Acts chapter 2 is that no one or everyone in the church was coming together and providing for everyone else's needs. They loved one another, tangibly. They cared for one another. And do you know what the end result of that was? It says that they had favor with all the people. This is the same city where they just crucified Jesus. And now the church, because they loved one another, had favor with all the people. The people were saying, we may not want to join them, we may not agree with them, but man... Something's different about them. Look how they care for each other. In fact, one of the secular historians in the early centuries of the church, after the close of the New Testament, said the same thing. He's reporting to the emperor about Christians. And he says, they may be fanatics. They may be heretics. If you're a Roman worshiping multiple gods and someone says there's only one god, then they're heretic. They may be fanatics. They may be heretics. But look at how they love one another, emperor. Something's different about these people. And they were able to uphold the truth and get the attention of the emperor of Rome because they loved one another. We've had examples of that here as some of you have gone and helped one another. And people who aren't believers have said things like, and I quote, I've never heard of a church that does that. I've never heard of a church that would take care of the people like that. Thank you for that. Excel still more. Keep doing that. That is one way that we uphold the truth to the world is by our love for one another. And it's not just one way we uphold the truth, but it's one way that we actually are the truth. We demonstrate the truth because God is love, right? And Jesus is love. If there's anything we can say about Jesus, it's that he loves his people. And when we love, we are reflecting Jesus to the world. We are being truth to them. And we are demonstrating how Jesus changes us from the inside out. We are demonstrating the truth of the gospel. So I urge you to excel still more, to keep on going. And I urge you just specifically this morning to think, is there someone this week that I need to love? For their sake and maybe for the sake of someone else who's watching, who needs to know the truth as it is in Jesus. Is there someone this week that I need to tangibly love? Number four, the church is the pillar of evangelistic truth. 
The pillar of evangelistic truth. Verse 16, halfway down, reminds us that Jesus was proclaimed among the nations. One way we uphold the truth is to proclaim it. Not just from the pulpits in our church buildings, but among the nations. Jesus proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world. And let me pause again here to say thank you for helping me do that in Ethiopia. Thank you for giving me the freedom, both time-wise and financially, to be able to go and train men who are proclaiming the truth among the nations. Some of them, it's almost 9 o'clock at night now, some of them have already stood up today and proclaimed truth among the nations. And you helped with that as you prayed and supported and allowed me to go. You could say the same things about Brian in Kenya. You have helped him to be there to proclaim truth. He shared in his latest email how he got to proclaim truth to a dad whose little girl is dying. May already be gone. And he got to share the gospel with him and hear that man say, yes, I want Christ in my life. So in Ethiopia, in Kenya, among the Navajo, in Central Asia, in Brazil, and lots of other places, you are being the pillar and support of the truth. Thank you. But before we leave this point, let me ask you, what about Pleasant Ridge and Redding and Deer Park and Silverton and Kennedy Heights and Westchester and Westwood and Coleraine Township and Norwood and Hebron and Springfield Township and Loveland and Milford and Florence? Who is holding up Jesus in those neighborhoods? It's us. It's us and a few other churches. And if we aren't the pillars that we're supposed to be, how will they hear? And if they don't hear, how will they believe in whom they have not heard? Make sure that as representatives of the church out among the neighborhoods that we are pillars and supports upholding the truth. Fifthly, finally, the church is the pillar of the truth as it is in Jesus. We said that the truth mentioned in verse 15 is fine for verse 16. What is the truth? A better question to read verse 16 is who is the truth that Paul is speaking about? In verse 16, was he who was revealed in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory? So when Paul speaks about the truth, yes, we know that that means doctrine. We know that that means right behavior. We know that that means telling the stories of the Bible. But all of those things ultimately come to a head in Jesus. The truth is Jesus. So when we are a pillar of the truth, we're not just a pillar of sound doctrine. We're not just a pillar of good behavior. We are a pillar of sound doctrine, good behavior, biblical knowledge, all of which points to Jesus, the head of the church, the bridegroom of his bride. Think about it. Order in the church reflects the ministry of Jesus. The reason why God has given elders to keep spiritual order in the church is so that they might reflect the good shepherd. God's given under shepherds to reflect the good shepherd. That's why we're here. That's why I'm here. By my leadership, by my example, by my teaching to reflect the ministry of Jesus, how he cares for his church, how he feeds his church, for how he leads his church. The same thing with the deacons. 
The deacon's ministry reflects the ministry of Jesus. Jesus taught. Jesus met spiritual needs. Jesus fed the people on God's word. But he also healed the sick, didn't he? He also bent down with a towel and washed his disciples' feet. So the ministry of elders and the ministry of deacons is really simply a little tiny reflection of what Jesus did while he was with us here on this earth. So the order in the church that God has designed is designed to reflect the ministry of Jesus. Also, doctrine is designed to give us a particular shape to Jesus. Again, Jesus isn't just kind of who we imagine in our minds. When we talk about Jesus, we don't picture a face we don't, picture, we don't hear a voice in our minds, oh, that's how his voice sounds. No. When we think about Jesus, we describe Jesus, we know Jesus based on a certain set of descriptions written down for us as doctrines in the Bible, right? Bible doctrine is, is not taking us away from Jesus. Oh, you, we're all, everybody's interested in these doctrines, but we just need to know Jesus. No. Bible doctrine actually defines Jesus, doesn't it? And defines what he's done for us. Bible doctrine is like a connect the dots for little children. You ever play connect the dots? As an adult, you can kind of look at the dots and tell what it's supposed to be, a pony or whatever it is. But as a child, you start drawing with number one and you go all the way through to number 76 and you connect all those dots together and it finally makes a picture of something. But if you didn't actually draw straight lines, who knows what it comes out to be? And if we didn't have, or we would have the picture of Jesus that says, Jesus wants me to have a new Corvette. And again, they haven't connected all the dots. Those people haven't really connected any of the dots. They haven't learned Bible doctrine. If we're going to get Jesus right, we have to connect the dots of doctrine. And doctrine answers who Jesus was and what he did and why he did it and how he did it. And without all of that, we don't have the real Jesus. So doctrine along with order, points us actually to Jesus. And of course, our love for one another reflects the character of Jesus, doesn't it? It reflects who he is, what he's like, and it reflects his ability to change our hearts. We once loved ourselves. Now we love this group of people whom we never knew before. We once loved only what we wanted, And now we love what God wants, and we love God himself. When we love, we reflect Jesus. And obviously, when we share the gospel, when we evangelize, we are proclaiming Jesus. We are pointing to Jesus. So all these other kinds of truth, all these other ways of upholding the truth are not just things that we do so that we can be right and so that we can be biblical. Yes, that's true. But the reason we want to be right in our order and right in our doctrine and biblical in our character and biblical in the way we share the gospel is because all those things point to Jesus. And he's our all. He is not simply all that we need. He's all that we have. He is our only hope. And he is the only hope for the people that are out there in the world around us this morning. So why is the church important? The church is like the throne upon which Jesus sits for all the world to see. The church is like a pedestal upon which Jesus is displayed to the world. The church is the pillar that upholds Jesus. And if he is lifted up, he will draw all men to himself. So this morning, for the sake of Jesus, who loved you and gave himself for you, 
and for the sake of those around you who need him so badly, let us make sure that we are the strong, high pillar that God has called us to be. Father, thank you for the church. Thank you for this church bought with Jesus' blood, reflecting his character, and we pray that you would help us excel still more. God, nothing that's been said this morning is new. None of it is information that we haven't said and tried to apply before. But I pray that perhaps one of these points or subpoints that was made would ring true in our hearts. That we would leave this morning knowing that we've heard from you, knowing that we have change to undergo, that we have reason to expect that it can happen because of your Son. Help us to lift him high above ourselves, above our own wishes, above our worries and the cares of the world. Help us to lift Jesus high above all those things so that he might draw all men to himself. And we pray in his name. Amen.